Good morning. I'll be reading from John chapter 3, verses 12 through 18. If you wish to follow along, it'll be in the Pew Bible, page 940. John chapter 3, 12 through 18. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here, and we want to be an encouragement to you. We're still basking in a wonderful, wonderful Sunday, this past Sunday of our Missions Emphasis Day. We appreciate Tim Brunsfield and also Alan Cantrell being with us in the morning, and then the, the great full report that was given in the evening and everybody that was involved in that. But we want to remind you that if you... Uh, have interest in the proposal that Alan presented to us to help the work in Mankato, Minnesota. Uh, there are packets available where you can learn more about it and then also in these packets even have application if you want to be an intern involved in that. And it's the look and the search for individuals that would be willing to go and be vocational ministers uh, in that area. And it's a tremendous opportunity. And so uh, if you missed last Sunday morning Bible class here, it is online where our sermon are archived and you can learn a lot more about that work there and we are excited uh, to be supportive of that work. Also we want to remind you that uh, throughout this month of the marvelous commission that God has given us, uh, we want to inform you, which a lot of information was given last Sunday. We want to involve you every way that God has given you the opportunity and the ability. We want to encourage you to get involved. Uh, we want to let you know who the missionaries are so you can be praying for them. Those magnets are in the window seals and in the foyer. If you missed those last week, it's a great opportunity to do that. But also, we want to encourage the missionaries themselves. And so one way that we hope that that will be accomplished this whole year, not just this week or this month, but each of our adult Bible classes will be adopting one of our missionaries. Uh, we have about 17 missionaries. No class uh, will be, two classes will be assigned the same missionary. So your class, the support that you're giving and encouraging will be up and so today in your class, your class coordinator and your elders uh, that's in your class will be talking with you and a flyer of information will be placed in your class and it'll let you know more about the missionaries, the mission work that they're doing and the prayer requests that they have submitted for you to be praying. And so, of course, we hope that you'll be getting in touch with them if it's on their birthdays and anniversaries. We hope that every month in some way you're getting in touch with them and, and some mission works, it's easy to send a care package to and just uh, stay in touch touch and others. It's a little more challenging, but we hope everybody uh, will do what they can do in those classes so that all year long, 12 months out of the year, our missionaries are supported. Listen carefully. 
It's not enough to support missionaries financially. That's not enough. They need relationships. They need encouragement. They need prayers. They need people that they know are caring about them. Our church family ought to be a support in the fullness of that all year long. And so help us together. It's tough for one person or just a small group of people to encourage every month 17 missionaries. But think what we can do when we divide that work out among hundreds of us. And so get excited about that and, and talk about that beginning in Bible class today. And I'm sure over the next few weeks that you'll devise a plan and, and be consistent in that. Also, as already mentioned, uh, here we are in, in a month where the emphasis on missions and the Del Zotas uh, left last Thursday. And they're going to spend about three weeks in Argentina. They'll come back on the uh, 8th of March. This first picture is where uh, they we're flying out of Nashville, and this next picture is when they landed in Argentina. Uh, they, they'll be in kind of like a house church situation this week. They've been going around in the community and inviting people to come, and that's where they're worshiping today to study with those individuals. But then they'll fly over just south of the capital city, and there's a Pentecostal church that wants him to come teach them. And so he's asking for our prayers specifically about that. And uh, then the third week, there's a, a congregation of the Lord's church there that he'll go by and encourage and then there's a lot of radio stations and just individual works uh, that he plans on doing and has already a lot of that set up. And so he's got really a busy time. And as I was corresponding with him, one of the things he just said at the end of a, <clears throat> of a correspondence, he says, I hope and pray that my faith is up to the challenge that is before me on this trip. And uh, in, in tradition of this congregation, when we have any of our own that go on mission trips, we always pause and pray, and let's do that at this time. Our most gracious God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be together this morning and worship with your people. Uh, we realize it's one of the greatest blessings that we have in our life. And God, we're thankful uh, for those of our number uh, that are willing to take trips to share the good news of your son, Jesus. And God, we pray for Alex and Patricia, and we pray that they have the faith to meet the challenge. Uh, that lies before them. Uh, we pray that you give him a ready remembrance of passages of your truth that he has studied and that he will be able in love to present those in a way that would touch lives. God, we pray that you would be with them as they plant and as they water. And our prayer is that you would be able to give a lot of increase. Please give them safety. Please give them encouragement. And we pray uh, for their daughters and the rest of the family that remain here. And we pray that all will be well with this good family. We thank you that the Del Zotos are with us and a part of our church family here, God. And we're thankful for each one that's here this morning, uh, for guests, for longtime members, for everyone. And God, we pray that you bless us with an open heart, with open ears, uh, with an honest approach to your scriptures this morning. And we pray that your will be done. It's through your son's name we pray. And amen. Church marketing in the 21st century seems to be a little bit of a challenge to me personally. I'm not speaking for anyone else, but for me. I feel like sometimes that, that church marketing ought to be interwoven so tightly with the Great Commission that it just moves as one piece of fabric. But other times I feel like it's not that way. Sometimes I feel like church marketing today in the 21st century is more of a tug of war with the Great Commission. And if that's ever the case in reality, we're doing marketing wrong. 
We're doing the idea of, hey, I want to let everybody know about the Lord, his kingdom, his church. If it's not working hand in hand with the Great Commission, something is wrong. When I look at junk mail that, that comes in the, to my house and probably like you, I stand right over the, the trash can and I just flip, flip, flip. And every now and then it will be from a church and I, and I pause long enough to read the postcard. And sometimes it seems more like it's advertising entertainment. Or it looks a little bit more sometimes like you know, a social network, not exactly a dating site, but, but you know those sites where like, hey, are you looking for new friends? Do you not know people around you? This is a great place to come. There's really some good friendly folks here. And then sometimes it looks like it's marketing to those that are bored. Hey, you don't have good activities in your life. Come here. We have wonderful activities here. Now, the Lord and his church, his kingdom, ought to bring a lot of joy. It ought to be full of a lot of good people that would be some of the best friends that we would ever have. And it ought to have a lot of activities that are some of the most important things that we can be involved in because it's kingdom work. So you see how all of this in one sense could work hand in hand, but yet sometimes it seems presented so far-fetched from the Great Commission that it looks more like it's at odds with the Great Commission. That made me just think, how did Jesus approach talking about the kingdom to people? In John the third chapter, when he sat down with Nicodemus, his approach was to talk about being born again. And even though he didn't use the exact words, he directly said, Nicodemus, you need to listen again. And then he ultimately said, you need to look again. In other words, there's this kingdom that's coming and you're not listening to what's being said about it. And right now, Nicodemus, you're not even looking in the right direction. And there's a lot at stake here. He builds all of this conversation around condemnation or salvation. And that seems to be the missing element that oftentimes is involved in our conversations when we talk with others about the Lord, his kingdom, and the church. And I know that this must be spoken in truth and in love. And so I'm not saying that I'm throwing this out as a clear-cut, easy thing to accomplish. But we must figure out what is the real message of the Great Commission. And are we doing what we need to do to be a part of the Lord's kingdom work for this to be done? And of all the things that Jesus compared himself to, to Nicodemus, he compared himself to a poisonous snake on a pole. I don't know about you, but I hate snakes. As a matter of fact, I was visiting with Wayne Miller about this and I mentioned to him about how much I hated snakes and he said, well, there's only two kinds of snakes that I hate, dead ones and live ones. And I said, I'm on your page. Uh, when I was a little, little fella, I'm, I'm talking like five, six, seven years old, springtime, I was barefooted, I was way back on our farm checking the cows and a black racer greeted me on the path that I was walking. And if you know anything about black racers in the springtime, which I didn't at that age, but I learned, 
So I did what I still today would do if I saw a snake. And I know a lot of you saying, black racer won't hurt you. Uh, I don't care what you say. I'm not. So I turned around, I turned around and I took off running. And so I I ran as fast as those little feet could go down that path. and, And I probably ran a good 100 to 200 yards. And so in my mind, that black racer is way back there and I'm here now. And I stop and I turn around and he's followed me. I think that's why I don't like snakes. But the next time I ran, I ran all the way to the back door and slammed the back door. Did you know that out of about seven to 8,000 people in America that are bitten by snakes each year, only five to eight die each year? The rattlesnake is considered the, the largest of the deadly snakes in America. It can strike one third of the length of its body. A much smaller snake, but still a deadly snake, is a copperhead. Uh, It's usually only like 18 to 36 inches long. The coral snake lives in the southern, the most southern part of the southeast and of Texas. And, And even though it looks very similar to a king snake that is not venomous, the coral snake is very venomous. And, and if you need to be able to tell the difference in them is anytime the red ring touches the yellow ring, it's a poisonous snake in this family of snakes. Why is it that Jesus would look to a poisonous snake and say, Nicodemus, I want to teach you something about me that you need to take another look my way. What is it? Well, let's go into that. And if you have your Bibles open, turn to John, the third chapter. And, and we are in the passage where Nicodemus comes to Jesus in a nighttime visit. Here's a beautiful painting of that in the Smithsonian. And you'll notice that obviously the painter uh, kept with the setting and, and he kept it dark. And, and because it was a nighttime visit and he was a leader among the Jews, he was a Pharisee, but he was also a man that would not ignore the reality that Jesus had done some amazing miracles since he'd been in Jerusalem. If you have your Bible open, you can glance back at the second chapter and you see the last three or four verses of the second chapter chapter points to the fact that when Jesus came into Jerusalem for the Passover, he did many signs before them. Well, obviously people were noticing, who is this man that can do miracles? And so in John, the third chapter, the first few verses, when Nicodemus comes to him, he mentions the fact, you must be of God. Now, at this point, he's just recognizing him as a teacher. And so what he is implying is, you must be a teacher of God and from God, because only somebody from God could do these kind of miracles. And so what he's going to do is he's not going to say, let me tell you about this kingdom that's got the friendliest folks. Let me tell you about this kingdom that's just got the best of activities. Let me tell you about this kingdom that you're just going to love. It's so much fun. He doesn't do that. He looks at a man that is ignoring the only way of salvation. Jesus. He looks at him and he pleads for his soul and for his salvation. And so Jesus immediately brings up the topic of the kingdom and how to get entrance into it. And it's from there that a lot of questions are raised by Nicodemus. He doesn't understand how an individual can be born again. And so in verse four, he literally asks how. 
And then again, in that same verse, he says, can. In other words, how, how can a man be born again? Can he enter his mother's womb a second time? And I want you to notice how Jesus answered in John 3 and 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, remember our theme this year, marvel? Here's time where Jesus says, don't marvel of this. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. First, let's talk about this born again, and then let's drop back and say, why did he say no, not to marvel about this? First idea of being born again, I want you to imagine you never heard that phrase ever in your life. And if you can do that, you're probably putting yourself in Nicodemus' shoes. And so you have respected the fact that this teacher can do things that you haven't seen other teachers do. And you want to hear a message from him. You want to go and ask him some questions. And so one of the first things he says to you is a phrase you haven't heard before. You need to be born again. If you've never heard that phrase before, you might begin thinking just like Nicodemus thought. I can't imagine any kind of birth where a full-grown man could be born again. And of course, we know that Jesus was speaking to him about a spiritual birth where sin separates us from God and instead of living our life in condemnation and living eternal life in condemnation, we can begin anew. Our sins can be washed away. We can be born spiritually and, and in a sense, so far as our soul and our, our standing before God, it's as if we have never sinned. We could easily find people that you could say, hey, if you could go completely back in time physically and you could start life all over again and you could be born again physically, would you want to do that? And we can easily find people that says, if, if I could go all the way back, absolutely, I'd like to start again. Well, we can't do that. But isn't it wonderful that we can look at all of our past regrets and spiritually, spiritually speaking, we can begin again. We can be born again. But I want you to notice a flip side of this same coin. With this blessing of being able to be born again also comes a huge responsibility. When you look in this very same chapter, in the third chapter, just glance down at like verse 20 and 21. Notice those verses there, through there, that talk about the fact that some do not want to come to the light. And here Jesus and his teaching is the idea of light. And he's saying, some don't want to come to the light. Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Some people don't want to be born again? Absolutely. Why? Because not only is being born again something that God has done for us, but it's something that we decide to participate in, and in that, we decide to make major changes in our life too. What God does for us is he forgives us and, and remisses those sins for us, and we can't do that for ourselves. But what he does expect us to do is he expects us to repent. He expects us to take the, the, whether it's sinful, selfish, unrighteous, remember, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, all this living and repentance idea of turn away from. He expects us to turn away from it and look to him, believe him, live for him. Wait a minute, you want me to live, leave this sin behind? I don't want to come to the light because you know what it's going to prove? I haven't left the sin behind. So I'm just going to stay back here in the darkness where I don't feel so guilty. Being born again is one of the most beautiful phrases 
that many people, when they come to understand what it really means, don't want anything to do with it. Because they love the works of darkness more than they love the light. That's what Jesus taught Nicodemus at this same setting. So being born again is something wonderful that the Lord offers us, but it's something great in responsibility of how we accept this gift and what is required of us as we do it. So with that in mind, that's why perhaps, look again at John 3 at verse 7 at the beginning when he says, do not marvel that I said this to you. Isn't born again something worthy of our marvel? I think it is. But the reason he's telling this man, you shouldn't be marveling about this right now. In other words, as if this is the first time you're ever hearing it. This is something instead, look in verse nine. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, verse 11, most assuredly I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we've seen and you do not receive our witness. That's why you shouldn't be marveling right now as if, wow, I've never heard anything like that. In essence, what Jesus is saying is me and my disciples have been right here in Jerusalem and you know what we've been teaching? Exactly what you're marveling about right now. You know what we've been testifying about? Exactly what you're marveling about right now. It's not impressive anytime you and I have the opportunity to listen to God and we won't listen. As I was writing this lesson, I, I tried to figure out ways to illustrate this for proper application and, and I found myself falling short, but just let me try to explain such a simple concept. Today, you're here which means you have had the opportunity to listen to the teachings of God. You may have a friend that's a Christian that's invited you and you guys may have sat down and talked in the past, which means you've had the opportunity to listen to God. It is a good chance that you own a Bible and if not, we would love to provide one for you. And in that, you have an opportunity to open it and listen to God. It is not a small thing when God speaks and we refuse to listen. As a matter of fact, this was a reoccurring problem in the Gospel of John. Flip over a few pages in your Bible to John 5. Notice in John 5, and, and, and we're just going to have to scan the latter part, but I, I want you to see how he, if you will, marketed the kingdom. Look what he said in John 5 and 28. Do not marvel at this. He's saying it again. The idea is, you're telling me you still don't know this. Do not marvel at this. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. And so in essence, what he's saying here is, why are you marveling at this? Like you've never heard anything like this. And when you read on down, glance down and see what he says in uh, verse 31. The reason they should have already known this is Jesus himself has been bearing witness to this. 
The forerunner in verse 33, John has been bearing witness to this. In verse 36, the works that Jesus has done that was given to him by the father, like those miracles, works like that. They have already borne witness to this. The father himself in verse 37 has borne witness to this. The scriptures themselves in 39 testify to this. And even Moses in verse 45 would testify of this. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, how many different ways can I teach you the truth and you continue to ignore it? Most everybody here has a copy of the Bible and can study it all week long this week if you really wanted to see what Jesus testified of himself. Most everybody here could get online and you could read articles and learn more. Most everybody here has friends that they could sit down and study with. We say on a regular basis, we're willing any week to sit down and study with you and we mean it. We do it every week. We'd love to sit down and study with you. Friends, you want to unimpress Jesus? You want Jesus to look at you and say, you don't have anything to marvel over. Ignore his message. Ignore when Jesus speaks. How does it make you feel? How does it make you feel when you have something very, very important to tell someone and they purposefully ignore you? So you try again. They ignore you again. You try again and they ignore you again. Listen, Jesus was getting fed up with the Pharisees. He tried over and over and over and over. And so on this nighttime visit, in a loving way, he came straight at Nicodemus. He says, it's interesting you're marveling over this. When you've had the opportunity to learn this a good while back, what did he teach him? I want to remind you that in 2 Peter 1 and 3, as his divine power, that means it's not a man, it's a God that you're holding the Bible. His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who's called you by glory and virtue. That's why we need to read the holy word of God. It gives us everything we need to know to have life. And why would we ignore that? <clears throat> so go back to John 3. And notice, we're going to drop down to verse 14, but long in about verse 11 and 12, he shifts gears. And he doesn't use these words, but the context would say this. In context, he says, you know what? I've been talking to you at this point as a teacher because you came to me as a teacher. And so I've been talking to you as a teacher, but I'm about to shift gears on you. Nicodemus, I want to start talking to you as a potential savior. Let me tell you what I have done. And read with me, if you will, John 3, verse 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What? He's going to compare himself to a snake on a pole? That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Hold your finger here and drop over to, to Numbers, the 21st chapter, real quickly. In Numbers 21st chapter, the children of Israel are coming toward the end of their 40-year journey. As a matter of fact, Moses is going to die very soon. And one of the things that was a constant in the lives of the children of Israel was their ability to complain. 
Mamas and daddies, do your children a favor and give them a huge spiritual head start and don't allow complaining in your house. Now, that has to begin with whom? So moms and dads have to quit complaining. Let's make sure as a congregation that complaining is never tolerated as an acceptable culture in our congregation. The children of Israel, one of the things you could regularly count on them doing, before they left Egypt, they complained. They get to the Red Sea, they complained. They go in the wilderness of sin, they complain. As a matter of fact, just back a chapter in Numbers the 20th chapter is where Moses ends up losing it, sins, and God says, you can't go into the promised land. And he ends up dying on the top of Mount Nebo, looking over to the promised land. And do you remember one of the things that provoked that? They're complaining. And so now, they're getting very close to Canaan's land. And what do they do? Well, they do what they have done very well. Look in Numbers 21st chapter and verse 4. At the end of that verse, it says, And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. In verse 5, the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And see, that's not true. The Lord's been providing them food and water. And our soul loathes this worthless bread. They weren't content. That's obvious from that verse. In verse six, so the Lord sent fiery, that means poisonous snakes among the people and they bit the people and many of the people of Israel died. All right, imagine a crowd of, of, of possibly hundreds of thousands and some have said up to a million or more. So we're, we're talking about like what we would think of as a pretty large city of people traveling around. Now, when many of them die, how many snakes is it and how many of them are dying? The Bible never tells us. But you can imagine there are a lot of poisonous snakes and there are a lot of people dying. And in wisdom, you know what Israel does? They come to their senses and they repent. Look in verse seven. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. Now, isn't that a wonderful way to own your mistakes? You know what our nature is? It's their fault. Do you see the way they did that? It's their fault. If they hadn't done that, I wouldn't do this. It's divert. Oh, don't talk about my sins. I want to make them look like a sinner. Oh, we have all kinds of mechanisms we use to get the attention off of our sin. Listen, when we're wrong, there's one way back. Repentance. And its root, repentance means change. I'm here in sin. I'm a complainer. If I'm going to turn back to God, I cut the sin off of complaining and I turn back to God. You got to admire that even though they were really good at the horrific sin of complaining. You got to admire the fact that at least they came back and they owned it. And they said, we've sinned. We've spoken against the Lord, against you. Pray to the Lord that he takes away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. That seems reasonable, doesn't it? Lord, if we repented, would you take the, the, the poisonous snakes away? But notice what God's answer is in verse eight. Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. Verse 9, so Moses made a bronze serpent and he put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. 
I'm not going to take the snakes away. But I'll tell you what I'll do. Moses, I'll allow you to put a serpent up on a pole. And anybody that is bitten by that poisonous snake, and keep in mind, we're not talking about a little community this size. We're talking about a gathering of people that would have spread for miles. And so when they're bitten, they're just going to have to make their way back to the snake on the pole. Can you imagine the dads that helped their sons back? Son, you've been bitten. You're going to die like our neighbors died. But Moses has lifted up a pole with a snake. Son, we've got to get you there. Imagine walking from here to the interstate. Son, we're going to get you there. Son, we're here. Look. And your son that was dying lives. Can you imagine the embrace? Can you imagine the joy? Can you imagine husbands and wives that, that hugged each other because one of them was about to die? Can you imagine neighbors that helped neighbors get to the pole so that they could look up and, and they could live? Do you see something mixed in here about the Great Commission? Do you see a picture of, of what do we do when our neighbors are dying? What do we do when our families are dying? Do we just invite them to a friendly church? Tell them some really good stuff happening. Or do we get down to the core? You're dying. You're dying. I want to help you look to the only one that can give you life. With that in mind, I ask you to go back to John 3 and 14 and I ask you to look at that same passage one more time. And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Why did God do this? In verse 16, because he loved the world so much he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not, what? Should not perish, but have everlasting life. Listen, I know there's gonna be some of you disagree with me on this, but I don't know what to do because I'm just reading the Bible. But it bothers me how big a deal some people make about the fact of, well, when, when I was baptized, I think the only reason that I was baptized is, is I didn't wanna go to hell. The way I read the Bible, that's a really good reason to look to Jesus. It's a really good reason to look to the only one that can give you life. Jesus did not sugarcoat with Nicodemus. I believe he said it with love and we've got to figure out how to do that. But Nicodemus was hearing a message real clear. Nicodemus, you're a scholar of that old covenant. You know the story about everybody dying that was bitten by those snakes unless they looked to the serpent on the pole. Nicodemus, if you're not willing to look at the Savior in a whole new way, because right now, they didn't look at him as the Messiah. Are you going to be willing to look? And then there's a little prophecy in here. Keep in mind, Jesus hasn't died yet. And in essence, what he's saying is you file this away, Nicodemus. One of these days, you're going to see me lifted up like that snake. 
And you're going to know that I am where you look to have eternal life. What a story. Let's skip a few slides and look down at John, the 19th chapter, we close this. I know we're out of time, but you can't leave the rest of the story, right? Any of you that are older remember Paul Harvey, the rest of the story? You know, what's interesting is when you read John, the third chapter, it, it kind of leaves you a little bit a nagging feeling because you're like, Nicodemus had such a good visit with Jesus. You're telling me Nicodemus didn't do anything. And no, we don't know that he did anything. You go a few more chapters over and you get one glimpse of Nicodemus. And it looks like he's kind of standing up for Jesus, but it also looks like he's not stepping out there for Jesus. And so you're like, you're telling me he had this nighttime visit with Jesus and it didn't do any good. When do you think it did good? It did good whenever he was able to see the one lifted up. And so notice, now Jesus has died in John the 19th chapter. He's still on the cross. And look at this, in verse 38. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took the body of Jesus. Verse 39, and Nicodemus, the third time we see him in John, and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then who? They, Joseph and Nicodemus, took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as was the custom of the Jews to bury. Nicodemus, if you go do that, you're gonna be making a statement. Do you wanna be seen out in public? You mean to tell me, I don't know if they climbed a ladder. I don't know if they pulled the spikes out and caught the body. I don't know if they gently laid down the cross. I don't know how they did it, but I know this. Joseph and Nicodemus picked up Jesus in a very public place as if by their actions to say, I'm standing with him. You crucified him. You rejected him. He's the one I'm looking to. Amazing considering the resurrection hasn't even happened yet. Jesus, what would you tell Nicodemus? I tell him, you need to be born again. I tell him, you've been hearing this and ignoring it. You need to start listening to it again. And I tell him, you need to look at me again. And this time, you don't need to look at me as just a teacher. You need to look at me as your only hope for eternal life. If you're here this morning, there's a good chance you love Jesus. But I want you to go down to the core of your being. And I want you to ask yourself, why do you love Jesus? And it's not enough to say, well, I just love his people. They're some of my best friends. That's good that you do, but if that is the depth of the reason why you love Jesus, it's not enough. And maybe you say, you know, I've read some of the teachings of Jesus and Jesus was just a good teacher. That's not enough. Down to the very core of who Jesus is, you and I should know and love and serve Jesus because he is our only hope of life. He's it. And when we grasp him, him, all his teachings and his church, 
All of that should fall in place. But what we need to grasp first is Him. Be born again. Listen again. Look to Him again. If we can help you this morning, find Jesus. If we can help you know where to look, if we can help you listen again, if we can help you this morning be born again by water and spirit, if we can help you in any way, we would love to see you immersed into Christ. We'd love to see you restored. We'd love to see you asking questions and just taking the next step forward. Wherever you are, we would love to help you